we on here? All right. As you're doing that, let me ask you to take a look at this little thing right here. Um, I'm going to introduce our, our sermon series that we're doing. And we're, like Christine said, we're trying to do something that we've never done before. I don't know of any other um, Asian American church that's ever quite tried this uh, either. And we're doing an all-church sermon series. Every worship, uh, every worship service is preaching from this passage today. And, um, you know, the pastors have been working on this sermon series together. And the sermon series we've entitled, The Parade of Fools. I know it's a strange title. Um, and what we're talking about here is, we are going to be looking through Luke chapter 15. I know a number of you may be very familiar with this passage. Um, you've heard me even preach on it a couple of times. But it is uh, the Lord's very famous story, the parable of the prodigal son. And in it, we really have a series of foolishness, different ways that we don't get God. We really miss out on God and who He is and the way we are foolish in that way. And so that's why we entitled this message, the, uh, the series called The Parade of Fools. Now, um, uh, before you leave today, in the back there is this little yellow card. And I want to ask all of you guys to take one, at least one for your household, one per household. And what's the purpose of this? As we go through this series, the, the pastors, we, we, we want to try to come up with some activities and things that help you to process and walk together in the Lord through what, what's, being, what's being taught and preached. And particularly, we wanted to try to kind of grease the, the engine of you um, possibly fellowshipping and talking about this um, with other people in, the, uh, um, uh, in, in our church. And so... Especially just like, for instance, if you have children, um, your children are going to be hearing these messages too. And you know, obviously it's going to be a little different because it's for children as opposed to, you know, at uh, this age. And those of you who have uh, teenagers, they'll be, Frank will be preaching these messages. But what we wanted is we just gave certain sermons that we thought that could grease the, the wheels of conversation. And, um, you know, some of them are really easy. The first one's really easy. Uh, you know, the, the question is, what would you do with $10 million? That's, that's the question. And what we're asking you to do is place this little thing like a card on your dining table at home and use it, uh, and, you know, maybe take one question per day and use it for a conversation. Um, if you don't have any kids, it's just between you and your wife, maybe you guys can bring this to uh, your community group and use, um, use this as for conversation in your community group. And I don't know to what extent you may have conversations with people on the Korean ministry side, um, take this as an opportunity. They, they, they're getting these too. They're, the questions are all in Korean. Maybe you can ask, if you have a chance to sit with someone in the Korean ministry, ask, hey, what would you do with $10 million? And they might laugh, right? And, um, and they'll share that with you, and they'll know it's a signal that they're, they're, they're walking through this too. So this is something we want to try. Please take one of these home, you know, one for your household. And even if you're single, even if you're single and you know, maybe you don't live with anybody else in the church, and uh, maybe you don't even live with Christians. Maybe you're, you have some roommates and they're not even Christians or whatever. And let me en- encourage you to go ahead and take one of these and try it. And they'll, they'll go, like, well, that's so strange. And may- hopefully maybe these questions will prime some interesting conversations. And maybe they'll even think it's interesting if they'll say, all right, well, let me hear what, what your pastor is saying too. And they'll go on, on online and, and listen to some of these messages. So let me encourage you to try all this, okay? So with that said, let's go to Luke chapter 15. 
Luke 15, I'm going to read, it's a, it's a bit of a lengthy story. I'm going to read the whole thing, verses 11 through 32. It's worth reading. It's, a, it's, it's such a great story. <clears throat> but the whole cha- of chapter 15 is actually three parables. And right at the beginning of chapter 15, Pharisees and scribes say about Jesus, this man eats, receives sinners and he even eats with these guys, right? He eats with these disgusting people. And in response to this, Jesus tells three stories. He tells a story, one of a man with 100 sheep, but one of them wanders off. He leaves the 99 behind to go fetch that one. And he tells a story of a woman who's got 10 silver coins. She loses one of them. What does she do? She sweeps the whole house down, and then she finds the one, and then she celebrates. The, the first guy gets a one back, and then he celebrates. He throws a party. This woman, she sweeps her whole house. She gets this one coin. Then she celebrates and causes her friends to come. And then in this story, what Jesus tells is a story of a son, a son who was lost. And let me now read it, okay? Verse 11, it's the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look! These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you gave me a, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's, let's pray for today's message. Lord, we are so foolish. You are an incredible and loving and gracious Father. And yet, we are so distracted. We could be in your house and yet be so far away. We can have the, the doctrine and the idea that you are our Father. And, your hearts can, and our hearts could be so far from you seeking to run our life according to our own wisdom, according to our own agenda, to the riches that we desire. And so, Lord, today I pray especially that the, you would call younger sons and daughters back to yourself and help us to see beyond just riches and things that we want, but to see you, but to see a father, a father who loves us foolishly, crazily, just astounding in, in crazy ways. Help us to see that this is who you are. This is who you really are and how you long for us. So, Lord, use my babbling lips today and may your spirit move us and draw us toward the Father who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. This story, I, I said that this is a, a, a series that we're calling the Parable of Fools. I mean, the, the parade of fools. And through this parable, what Jesus is talking about is actually just two different sons who just so don't get it. They are so foolish. But actually, you know, today we're talking, and, and this, and this par- uh, parable is actually especially geared to show people how, how they really don't see it, especially even though they may be in the church. It's really geared to help us see the foolishness of the first son. But today, we really, I really want us to focus on the foolishness of the younger son. And I've entitled this message, Using God, because I think that kind of cuts to the heart of the lostness of this, of this younger son. And maybe a, lump, a number of you may be like this younger son. Maybe a number of you are using God. And so today's message, I'd like to break up in three parts. First, I'll just talk about how we use God. And I'll describe three different approaches toward using God. Right? I think that are very common. Three ways that we tend to use God. Um, part two, I'll talk about where does using God lead to? According to Jesus, how, what kind of, where does this get us in life? And three, what we really need, though, is a different kind of foolishness. What we need is a foolish father. A foolish father. That's why it will be the third part of the message. First part, using God. This story, um, right at the very beginning of the story, I know it's the biblical narratives, oftentimes when the Bible tells a story, it tells it in such a kind of economical and very short sec. It doesn't draw us out into all the, the... the tragedy and the comedy 
and the drama and all that unfurling. But right here, it's, I mean, just a couple of verses right into the middle of the story. Jesus says there's these two guys, two sons, and the younger son comes up to the father and immediately he says this thing. What I want, dad, is the money that's coming to me. Right there, that's what he says. And right at the beginning, you know, give me this share. And in, in the ancient times, I mean, in ancient times and in some other cultures today, I mean, many of you have ever heard me preach on this, you maybe already know this, but a lot of you may not know that in ancient times, soon as Jesus started telling this story, they would have gasped. They would have said, what? Right? Because what this son is saying is, tear this place apart, Dad, make yourself really poor. Now, in ancient cultures, especially in, in, in Jewish cultures, the first son would get twice the share of, of all the other sons. So what the father would do is if evenly divide all his wealth, all his estate and property up. And you guys know back then, what, it wasn't so much money and cash. What it was, was it was, it was animals. It was, a, it was a land. It was particular fields. You'd literally have to divide the land up into, so if a, if a man had five sons, he would divide it up actually into six because the first son would get a double portion. The first son would get twice the portion, and then the rest of the guys would get their portion. And that's what the father would have to do. Now, in this particular father, he only has two sons. And what that would mean is in order for him to have to do what this younger son demands, he would actually have to divide the, his wealth into three portions. That the total, the total form of all that he owns, he would have to divide that into three portions and in order to give what this younger son demands, he would literally have to make, he would have to sell his land, to have to take off one third of the portion of the land, have to sell all his cattle and his sheep and all this and sell all that and whatever money he gained from that, he would give to his son. We're not talking about a small amount of money here. What this son is asking for is completely outrageous. He's saying, Dad, right now, I'm not talking later. I want it now. I want you to make yourself one-third poorer right now. I want you to destroy one-third of our, all our family's wealth because it's, it's mine. So give me the money right now. So when this younger son looks at his dad, do you understand what he sees? He doesn't see a father who loves him. He doesn't see a deep relationship. He doesn't have, even have his identity. And later when he leaves, you know, it's very telling. He doesn't have his ring anymore when he comes home, which is the, the, the symbol of that I, this is my identity. And as long as you have this ring, you have a certain robe, everybody would know you belong to this family. This honorable man, he is, he is your, you are his son. And if I honor this man, I would have to honor you. But you know, he, he's thrown all that away. It's gone. But when he looks at his father, what does he see? He just sees money. <laughs> just sees the wealth. And really, and it gets even worse than that. When do you get an inheritance? Hmm? When do you get an inheritance? You get the inheritance when your parents die. When your dad dies, that's when you get the inheritance. So if for this younger son to go to his father and say, Give me my inheritance right now. Give me what's coming to me now. You know what he's saying? Not only are you supposed to tear apart your wealth one-third and give it, hand it over, he's saying, why don't you just die? Be dead. Old man, you're nothing to me. 
die. All you are to me is my money, my freedom, my autonomy, so that I get to be and go my own way. Do you see? Do you see how he uses him? The father is not someone he deeply has a relationship that loves him and that he's connected to and that he submits to. And he says, I get all of who I am in this, in this place, my relationship, my identity. Instead, he just uses him. All you are to me is money. So just die. If you were dead, I'd be fine. In fact, it'd be better. I just want this. This is all the thing I really want. And I think this is the spirit of a lot of people. A lot of people. That God, whether he is true or whether he exists, whether he's alive or whether he's dead, that's not so important. What matters is what we can get from him. That is what that matters. If we can get something in this life, and whether God is alive or God is close, or we, have, or, or we have this relationship, that's not so important. It's just what we can get from him. And let me just, just con- have three different ways. I'm, t- I'm going to talk about a, first a secular way, and then a de-churched way, and then I think even a religious way that people do this. Let me just talk first about uh, the secular way. You know, we live in a society where people... If you do polls and polls, and you know, people regularly do this, uh, people regularly have surveys on whether Americans believe that there's a God or not. You believe in God, there's a God? You know, it's interesting. Um, even though our culture is considered more and more post-Christian, post-Christian, you know what percentage of Americans say that they believe there's a God? You know what percentage is? This might surprise you. 90%. Nine out of ten Americans still believe <laughs> there's God. <laughs> And when they say they believe in God, they're not talking about, you know, some, you know, impersonal force out there, like in the way maybe the, the Hindu Brahma or something like that. They, they, they believe this God. He's a personal God. They believe in the God of the Bible. Nine out of ten believe that. Right? And yet, how many of them still think that, you know, this is a matter? And, you know, it's really interesting. Even among the 10% that, they're not, that they say they don't necessarily believe in God, you know what percentage of them say there is no God? It's really small. It's only like 1% or 2%. The rest of them, that they're either, they believe in some other non-Christian conception of God, or they are agnostics. So they have this kind of catch. Well, I'm not sure if there's a God. Maybe there is a God. And yet, the important thing is not whether so much for so many people, they still live essentially largely a secular life. It's not whether they have a relationship with God or they actually know Him, it is this life. If I have my freedom and if I have the things that make me happy, there's something else in this world. And if I got these things, this is what would make my life full. This is what would make my life. And, you know, and for varying people, so many things. For some of you, it is money. But actually, for a lot of people, it's not money itself. It's what money gets you. Money gets you something else. It gets you a certain kind of life, a certain, certain kinds of pleasures and a lifestyle. You know, when you're young, it's get a certain, go to, want to go to a certain college. Why do you want to go to a certain college? Because then it'll get you a certain kind of money, and then it'll get you a certain kind of job, and a whole certain kind of lifestyle. And so many people, it's, oh, it's certain adventures and vacations and pleasures. But, you know, there's so many people out there why are they not so interested in God and the church and the Bible and so forth? As long as they get these other things or they, they're pursuing these other things, 
God is just, it's, he's almost, doesn't matter. It used to be, if you go 30 or 40 years ago, the question of who is God, that was considered, at least every, even if people weren't pursuing him in their hearts, most Americans consider that a very important question. It's like you believe in, what's your religion? You believe in God. Nobody denied that they, went, you know, they didn't at least believe in God, even if they didn't necessarily regularly go to church. And so many Americans would at least go to church or church or synagogue or something a certain number of times a year. I mean, you know, you got the you have those those Easter and Christmas Catholics, right? I go to I go to church twice a year, you know. There's those I, I you know, I I do those activities during Passover. You know, I I know plenty of Jews who are observant during Passover but not during anything else. But that's the way it was like 30, 40 years ago, but increasing more and more people you know, if you, there's, there's a kind of illogic in our society. If God is who, the, the, the way the Bible says He is, the omnipotent, the most important being in all of creation, and the Bible says you can know Him and walk with Him, isn't it utterly illogical that more and more people feel that He is irrelevant? That what is said in the churches and what is taught is more and more deemed irrelevant, but it's largely because... I think it's just our society in some sense is more crassly honest. <laughs> right? That, that's what people say. We've we got to have authenticity. And we hate a certain kind of religious hypocrisy. But what people are really saying is, my life is really about all these other things. How rich I am, how successful I am, how handsome I am, how pretty I am, how powerful I am, how comfortable I am, how much pleasures I have. If these are the things, and if God, well... You know, if God is useful for these things, and why so many people are not interested in church is because these are the things that they really care about. And if God isn't needed at all whatsoever to have this kind of life, then who the heck cares about church? Right? So people run after all their idols of these things. And right here, as long as you've got the money, man, you know, and my autonomy, the secular way of using. But if God, and there's so many people who will check out church, if God can help me get some of these things, I'll listen to preachers or I'll check out church if this will be useful for this kind of life. There are some people who will be drawn to church if it's useful for their other idolatry. Hmm? Let me call this a kind of secular way that people would, might use God. All these blessings that they've received that they don't know they received from God. Right. Let me try a second way. Let me call it a de- the de-churched person's way that they may have used God. And de-church is the term that sociologists use for the people that at one point or another were in the church. They believed in God and they may have been very pious at one point in their life, but then they left and then they became part of the unchurched, or now it was called de-churched. And there is a set of people, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not that young of a pastor anymore. <laughs> I know I look really young, right, but... And especially some of these older guys in the Korean ministry side. And when I go hang out with Caucasians, they look at me like I'm this young guy. And then, and then when they find out that my kids are a certain age, and they're like, hey, this guy's not that young, right? Um, I've, been, I've been a pastor long enough now that I have actually watched a couple of generations come in and out of the church. And I've pastored, and actually even some of you have left the church and come back, right? I'm pastoring some of you who were formerly de-churched and now coming back to the church. And I have talked to so many people, you know, over the years who at one point or another were in the church, but they left the church. And I asked them why they leave. It was really interesting. The, the answers that they typically say, and let me just give you some common answers. Um, 
One, about why they left the church. You know, they used to be in the church because really the church was where their friends were. Right? And there were so many young... I mean, you, you could, I could make this accusation to literally every age. There are people who go to church essentially because church is where they meet a lot of nice people. And, you know, they don't want to hang out with people who are morally chaotic. They don't want to hang out with liars. They don't want to hang out with godless people and who, who get drunk and do whatever, right? They, they want to hang out with nice people. And church is a place where they can meet a lot of nice people like them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's more obvious if you look at, especially the youth group. A typical youth group, you know why a lot of the kids will come to church? A lot of the kids come to church because it, church is the way that mom and dad will be pleased with them. So a lot of the kids are there and they're not going to church and are part of youth group because they actually want to meet God and worship God and follow God and know God. It actually is... God is useful to keep mom and dad happy. <laughs> so that's one, that's one way they're using, using God. And you know, it's really interesting. There are 25-year-olds and 35-year-olds who go to church for that same reason. They'll go to church a couple times a year to keep mom and dad happy. They're using God. It's interesting, isn't it? But then there's a lot of kid teenagers. They go to church. You know how the first way they size up churches? They don't size up their church if they meet God and hear God's word. And the place makes them go, oh my goodness, I want to seek the Lord. When was the last time you talked to a 14-year-old kid who showed up in church and said, wow, my youth pastor, that message really, that message really helped me to see God. That really did something to me. But, but you know, but these, but these kids, these kids, I don't get them at all. You know, they're, they're, they're mean or they're, they're, they, they, they don't talk to me. But you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to go there for God. You ever met a 14-year-old kid that's you? Uh, these kids at the youth group, they're, they're, they're cliquish, they're snotty, they're hypocrites, they're not friendly to me, but man, my youth pastor talks about God in a way, I, I just got to go meet God. Yeah, that just happens every day, isn't it? <laughs> but what you hear nine out of ten times is, I don't like that church, mom, or I don't like that church because I don't like the kids there. What? And then, so then that makes you wonder, the kids who like the church, why do they like the church? Do you think they're so much different than the kids who don't show up at the church? No. A lot of the times, the reason they're there is because they just like the other kids that are there. Well, at least well enough. And if God was less, and if we could just have more pizza parties and more ski trips <laughs> and more fellowship and, and, and just keep the God stuff low, then that's okay. But they're, in a sense, they're using God, aren't they? But people don't necessarily graduate that easily from that. It's just that nowadays, you, the, the people, when the church stops being as socially useful and connecting to you, at some point you stop saying, well, God's not being useful. You didn't know it, but you're using him. And then they left. Right? So many people like that. And then maybe, if you're very merciful, if God is very merciful to you, you begin to Feel that need, and God will bring you home. Right. Let me just offer one other um, way that I think dechurched people have used God. Maybe there was a time, and maybe this is some of you. There was a time. There are some people, and I, and I mentioned this, in, and every now and then I mention this in a sermon. When they were young, 
They believed in God. They went to church and they were told that God loves you and God will hear your prayers. But they had a very particular pointed and painful need in their life. Maybe mom had cancer. They were terrified that if mom passed away, my life would be wrecked. You know, I've talked to a number of people that talk about they lost their faith in God after their parents got divorced. My dad used to take us to church. But I prayed really hard during all those times they fought. Right? But then they split up. And now God, I mean, come on. So God didn't give me what I wanted, what I needed. And so God, I don't know. And I know that seems like a harsh way to describe some people who are going through something very painful like that, in a sense that they're using God. But in that sense, what is God? God is not a loving father to such people. You know what God is? God is a cosmic genie that gives you and fixes a very big problem. God is a cosmic therapist. Or God is the omnipotent one who can snap his finger and fix something that nobody else can fix. But he isn't a father. And so, if he's useful to you as a genie, we'll go to him. But the genie failed me. <laughs> Not useful to me. Those people were using him too. Huh? Maybe some of you. A third set of people who use God, and that is, and if you've been in this church, you know that I, I like to come around as those in the church. And you know, let me just say this a little bit. A lot of times, I think a lot of people come to church and they think, these people just don't have much of God. And then they see people who don't seem to have much joy or power or much of the life of God in their hearts. And then they see, or then, and then even worse, and they see hypocrisy, they see liars, they see greedy people and people who make moral failing, even especially even among pastors and leaders and elders. And they get really angry. But, you know, one of the reasons why almost every single time I will preach about how people don't see God in the church. Because going to church doesn't make you really know God. So as as some people say, you know, just because you go to church doesn't make you, you know, just just because you have a garage doesn't make you a car, right? It's going to church. But there are so many people in the church that have a religious way of doing God. And And this this way, there's a number of people, for God, this is how you use them. God isn't someone that's exciting to know, that you love and you long to, to, to be with. And He is with you. And when you look at your life, the great, he, it's so great that He is the one who loves you. Instead, actually, really, there's all these other things in your life that you still want, but, but you know that, that Jesus is real, and you know that God is real, and you, know, you have the right doctrine, and you did really believe that God, you really actually believe that God is the real God and you believe you gave your life to Jesus. But the thing it is, is what you really is, is that, well, I don't really want to follow him. It's like I was talking about last week and being a disciple. So what I really want to do is keep God kind of manageable because I really need him to like pay for my eternal salvation. I need God to forgive me of my sins because I know sins are real and, and even I hate it when I sin. And I need God to give me some other good things in my life. And so what we do is we want to keep God a certain kind of manageableness. And so we use God for fire insurance. We use God for manageable religion. We use God for 
having a nice life where God stays in his place. It's the way a lot of religious people use God. But he's not a glorious father that we'd love spending time with. And let me just, just to get at you a little bit, and not, I know I'm not trying to make you feel bad, <laughs> um, but this is especially, how, how can you know? It's, it, it'll come up especially in the way you pray, if you pray. If God is someone more that you use, why would you pray to Him? Or you pray, the prayers that you pray are just prayers that you got to do because there's a certain amount of, just a certain amount of decent, decent minimal Christianity you got to do. So you got to pray sometimes, right? And then when you pray, what do usually you pray for? You usually pray for all the things you need. But usually the person who just loves somebody, they don't, I mean, when I go and first thing I, I talk, when I hang out with Grace, I don't go, hey, Grace, where's the dinner? Hey, Grace, did you wash the clothes? By the way, the, you know, this little button on my, on, on my suit kind of popped off. Did you fix that? And then, and then that's it. There's no other conversation. But when you really want to be with somebody, you know, like last night, like this past week I was out on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a trip. So I wasn't home for four days. And last night, and my wife, we haven't seen each other much, so, and we've been really busy, so last night we were dog tired, and we're, ha- and we're kind of like, blah, blah, having this kind of like, uh, and Grace goes, did you miss me? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. <laughs> and then she goes, how about a popo? How about a popo? That's how she talks to me sometimes. How about a popo? Like, yeah, maybe. And this is how you talk to someone you love. Maybe there's a little irony in it. <laughs> Maybe there's a little humor in it. But you know what she's really saying? She's just saying, I just like you. And you know when she said that to me? It's, and I, I'm kind of pretending like I don't like it. But, and it was, it was dark because we you know we're lying there in bed. I was really happy. <laughs> I was really happy. And what is it? It's just, I just like being with her. She goes, you miss me? And I'm thinking, it's a heck of a lot better than sharing a bedroom with Wesley. <laughs> That's what I said. Wesley, you know, because he went on this conference too and we were sharing a bedroom and he had a room over there. I was like saying, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> He's a nice guy, but you know. <laughs> but my, my point is, what do you say to someone you love? You don't always just say things you need. And do you like talking to the persons you love? I do. And it'll come up in your prayers. It'll come in your prayers with the things you say to God. Things you say to God. Let's go to part two. Part two. Where does this lead? Where does it lead if you are a user? (laughs) You're a user. If this is the primary mode of the way you approach life, that God is out there. He's just way out there in the suburbs. And for you, I don't know, for you, it's not even the suburbs. He's like in, in, in the closet. <laughs> he's, in, he's, in, he's in like a, a storage shed in the garage. He's like a, a wrench. Oh, wait a second. I need a wrench. Let's go back there and go get God. <laughs> and you're like, dig out underneath and go get God. If you're a user, right? where does it lead? According to Jesus... I mean, just, there's a few things he says in this story about where it leads. 
One place it leads is it leads you to be very far away. You know, it says in this story that this guy, he didn't just leave the house, take his money and go across town and set himself up with a hot shot luxury apartment and all the babes. You know, that's not what he did. This guy went to a far, I mean, he got far away, far off country. But it's kind of funny. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story about distance. But do you realize that according to sound biblical doctrine, God cannot be physically distant from you? You know that? There's no, there's no such thing. There's no distance. It's not like here. I mean, I grew up here in San Jose. And then after I graduated college, I lived in Boston for three years. And then I came back, we got married, and then my wife and I, we lived in Philadelphia for seven years. So we're living on the East Coast. I'm 3,000 miles away from my dad. I mean, that's a, that's a long ways off, 3,000 miles. I mean, it's three time zones, right? And you could say I'm far from my dad. But when it comes to God, you know that God is omnipresent? That's what the, the sound biblical theologians say. There is no place you can go in the universe where God isn't just immediately present. And I gave this illustration sometimes. I, I had this illustration sometimes. I had a ball, and I say, if this is the cosmos and all of history, God can go here. I'm, I'm, I'm over here on this side of the ball, and then he can go, oh, I'm over here on this side of the ball. That's what it's like. There's no place you can go where you can actually be physically distant from God. And so what does it mean to be God? If you are a user, you will be far from God. And you know, let me say this to you. He doesn't become far from you. You are making yourself far from Him. If your mode of operation toward God is using, you are making yourself far from Him. And there's no physical, spatial thing. You know where it is? It's that God can be anywhere... Anywhere on this planet, anywhere in this galaxy, anywhere in the universe, anywhere in time. But you know where he is very far from? Because you make him far is in your heart. In your heart, you make him really far away. You're making it happen, not him. It's you. And that's what, probably what this thing said, what the, what the Lord's saying. Users make God very far. And it's, you don't, have to, you don't have to run away anywhere. It's just right here in your own heart. Just the way you see, the way you operate. Right? A second thing that happens when you are um, a user, you'll get hungry. You will get hungry. In my first year of being in this church, I, I gave a message, which uh, I got some very interesting feedback from. And I quoted from a book which had a very powerful impact on me in my life. And I'll recommend this book to you, and let me bring it up again. That book is Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a terrific Christian writer. Almost all his books are good, right? This is one of his early books. And I quoted something he said in that book, and let me say it to you now. He said, there are two ways to wreck your life. Not getting what you want and getting what you want. That's what he said. There are two ways to wreck your life. Not getting what you want and getting what you want. Isn't that interesting? 
you know, you, you grow up. Oh, I'm going to go to the school and then I'm going to go to a good college and then I'm going to meet a pretty girl and she's going to be just perfect and we're going to get a really good job. And then and somewhere along the line, some of you, it, that, it didn't work. You wanted all these things to happen. You didn't get into the college of your choice. There's actually literally one of the young men in our church. He grew up in this church. And when he didn't get into the college of his church, he literally said, F you, God. Because God didn't give him his college. Right? And, but he just felt wrecked because his life was wrecked because he didn't get into his college. All of, at the age of, you know, that, that tender age of 18, 19, 20. Some of you are like that. But, you know, it's... Your career didn't work out. You got married, but then that didn't work out. Or wait a second, we got to have kids and we're having problems conceiving. Or you got the kids, but then one of them has some terrible disease. And so you didn't get the nice kids and the, I didn't get to play ball with my kid and him go on vacations with him. Or you got the three kids, but one of them is all strung out on drugs and ran far away. And now life just got destroyed. Somewhere along, you didn't get something that was so important in your life. And so you felt like your life got wrecked. And then you begin to feel hunger, emptiness, something deeply powerful you're missing. This guy's like, I am hungry. Right? But you know, what most people don't know is that is what Philip Yancey said. There, one way to wreck your life is by not getting what you want. But actually, this is really weird. Another way to wreck your life is by getting what you want. You get everything. You get the college. You got the girl. You got the kids. You got, you got the fancy vacation and the nice house and all that stuff. You got the success at the top of your career. It's, it's, um, I think one of the things that gives me sort of my conviction and power as a pastor is that um, my family, I watched my parents get the immigrants' dream. They got everything. They got everything. We lived, we went from poor neighborhood to poor neighborhood. In, in, in the way I grew up, we went from poor neighborhood, poor neighborhood, poor neighborhood. It was basically mostly black, poor neighborhood, mostly white poor neighborhood. Then we went to Mexican poor neighborhood and Vietnamese poor neighborhood. And then we finally went to rich white neighborhood. That was Saratoga. At least it was white at the time. Now it's like half Chinese and Indian and Korean, okay? But that's the way it was back then. And, you know, we, we were like the poorest people in our neighborhood. But we got to find, I got to see what it's like to be among the rich people. This is like one of the elite neighborhoods in Silicon Valley. And live there and be there. And let me tell you something. It was pretty boring. It was, this was what it was like. I was like, that's it? <laughs> that's all there is? And to go to school and hang out with kids who drive BMWs to school. I, I did not drive a BMW. I drove a really ugly. <laughs> I was like, Ugh. I hope nobody sees me getting out of this car. Okay, but, but kids who drove BMWs to school. And I looked into their life and go, that's it? And I've been around people who have made it to the top of their professions. You know, living in Silicon Valley, it's a, it's a, it's a strange and funny place. Most people in America think, if I just get all these things, then my life will be full. It's like, I, I, and so it used to be in America, you could come to this country, you can script and save, and when you're 40, 50, 60 years old, you can enjoy the good life. 
Or you can work in your company. You can keep chopping up. And, and then maybe when you're in your 40s and 50s or 60s, you would really be successful. And then you would have it all. You'd have the good life. You notice Americans are depressed. How many Americans are depressed? You know how many? You ever, every time I watch one of these Cialis commercials, <laughs> Cialis or Viagra commercial, I'm thinking like, they always show some guy who looks really got it all together. He's got money and so forth, but man, he's got to have this pill. And Silicon Valley, it's a very strange place because in Silicon Valley, you know what people show up for? You don't have to wait till your late 40s or 50s to get it all. It's this place. It could be a lottery ticket now. You could have it all in your 20s. Boom, boom, overnight, rich. You get it all, right? But do you ever, and I've met some of these people, and when I look into their faces and look into their hearts, do you know what I see? I don't see a whole lot. And some of them, they start to realize it. It's kind of empty in there. And they're hungry, and they don't even know that they're hungry. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. You know, the world thinks this. One of the guys in Silicon Valley, he's, he's just a total big shot, is Larry Ellison. And I've read a number of things about Larry Ellison. I mean, this guy is one of the craziest, richest guys. You know what this guy basically does? He, he goes into an industry, takes over a company, makes massive amounts of money because he knows how to do it. I mean, he's so clever at this. And then you know what he does? Then he goes and buys a big yacht and he has to compete and do all this stuff. And then you know what he does after that? Then he has to do it again. Then he goes and defeats another company. Then conquers another industry and he does it again. Then he has to go and does it again. Is that it? Is Larry Ellison hungry? The other place you can go. And maybe just some people figure this out. Some people realize it. Some people admit it. Many people don't. There's a lot of young people today, they just think, if I just keep getting these things, then, then I'll have it. But let me, just, let me just challenge you. Go take a good look at these people. Go read about them. If you ever have any friends, just ask them. Go take a good look at their life and look inside their life to see if it's full or if they're hungry, if it's empty. Right? It's empty. It's a lot more empty than you think. That's the second thing that could happen, that happens, not could happen, it does happen when you're a user. A third thing that can happen to your user, and let me say this to you, this is um, be a little surprising. If God is merciful to you, this will happen to you. You will go into the world, you'll get everything that you try to get, and then nothing will satisfy, and you get so dang hungry that you will begin to eat things that pigs eat. And here's my picture of it. There's a number of different pictures of it. I have pictures of it all the time. The guy who had the wife and had the kids, right? And had it, it all. And then he one day flips out and has this crazy, ridiculous affair with some prostitute. Most of us think, gosh, if you're like down there with a prostitute, what's wrong with that? There is a guy. He had it all, but that... Because in the Jewish culture, what the pigs eat... I mean, pigs are disgusting, unclean animals. If you are feeding pigs, what the Bible is saying is you are at the bottom. And there are people, they don't have much in their life. Like they're, 
you know, I see stories sometimes they're, they're, sometimes they're poor, sometimes they're rich. They know that hanging out with these people and partying and doing these drugs or whatever, it's just going to put them in the ditch. But then, they, but then they keep doing it anyway. Because this is all they got. There isn't something else that's more. And sometimes, you know, the people who put it all together and then, then they just grow cynical. This is where I think the people who are hungry to eat the things, that there are people that feel they have it all. And then you know what? They have nothing that makes them feel excited or joyful. And so they wish they'd have something. They've tried. They've been a foodie. They've had the vacations. They've had all the fun. And now they wake up every day and there's just kind of cynicism. And they wish they could just have something, even the crap that the pigs eat, that'll make me feel like there's something in me. Not empty. And if you can get to that place, let me tell you, actually, God is actually being very merciful to you. Because when you're getting to that place where you realize this is it, even I just long for the scraps to put something into me. If you're in that place, now you're starting to be in touch with life without God. Life without a father. Not a genie. Not someone you use. Not someone who's either, even like tremendously useful. But a father. Your father. So you're getting in touch with that reality. And maybe like this son you will come to, is the, the way Jesus it comes to, he comes to himself. You're actually coming into the reality of sanity. And you go, seek God. Let me close out this message with what I'm calling the foolish father. You know, every week you come to this church, for those of you who are regulars, and you will hear the gospel. In, there's a, in this story, do you know there, there aren't just two fools. There's a younger son who is a fool wrecking his life. There's an older son who's a fool wrecking his life. We'll talk more about him in the upcoming weeks. But actually, there's a third fool in this story. That's God. And this, this, this father, doesn't he look so stupid? Totally disgusting son says, Rip apart your wealth. Give me one-third of it. Make yourself poor right now. You know what the dad does? Okay. God's saying, I'm like him. But actually, the real God is actually even worse than this father. You know what makes his father so foolish? He rips apart one-third of his wealth and he, he, it's gone. He knows it's going to be gone. It's going to be totally wasted. He's going to go down the rat hole, and he does it anyway. And then later on, when the son comes home, the son that everybody in the village hates, everybody in the village knows he's a disgusting piece of crap. If you go into um, uh, third world countries that still have this type of lifestyle, and you tell them this story, they would say, oh, no, no, if this were to ever happen, the whole village would beat this guy down if he were to come back. I mean, it would be almost a death sentence for him to come back. They would hate him so much. And the whole village knows this guy is disgusting, and yet this father humiliates himself to run. He's foolish. And it's actually not even that. 
And then he comes home. Now, let me blow even more money. <laughs> I'm going to blow all the money and then come over and have this party with me. And not only am I going to... The most valuable calf there is. This is the one that you feed and you fatten him up because he's the most valuable one. I mean, it's, it has to be the most spectacularly super important occasion. That's when we're going to eat this calf. Because that's, now we're going to eat this calf. Are you kidding? But even all that is not even quite, it's a pointer to the gospel, but doesn't really actually tell you the gospel. It doesn't really tell you the full reality of it. For it says, you know, this story is really intended to tear apart all of your conceptions of God and of life itself. Really. It's intended to rip all of your normal conceptions and tear it down. Your view of God is He is big and He is almighty and, 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 and then I have to play ball with Him and I have to be good and, and, and hopefully He'll do me some favors and God is useful to my life because, I mean, come on, I got, I got to get through some, I, got, I need some help occasionally. And God, the useful God, but actually what this story is saying is you need to see the foolish God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25, it says this. You know, it's, it's, it's a verse that a number of you have heard me say a number of times. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And you know, it's in the context where Paul says, you know, we, 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 preach, we preach the foolishness of Christ crucified. And you know why it's a foolishness of God? In this story, this father gives up one-third of his wealth, humiliates himself, throws this crazy party, blows more money. But actually, the real God didn't give up one-third of his wealth. When he put his son on that cross and poured out wrath to crucify him, you know what what he was doing? He wasn't giving up one-third of his wealth. He was giving up all. God was tearing the throne apart. God was tearing the world apart. You know what the Bible is actually saying? God is, I don't even know if you can even quite say this, but I'm going to dare to say this. God was ripping apart the very fabric of the Trinitarian communion, his own communion with his son. He was even tearing his divinity apart, if I could even so say that. So that you can see him. You can get him. That's what he's doing. And let me say this to you. In this story, this guy comes to himself and goes, okay, I'm going to go home and then I'm going to say, God, well, Father, let me be a servant and then, and then let me come home. But you know what? This foolish dad, that's not what he wants. The Father tore the universe apart, His divinity apart. Not so that you can come home to be a servant. He did not come home so you can obey and He could use you and you can do nice things for Him. He did not come so you can come home and do prayers and read the Bible and be a good person. No, 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 no. And he did not even do it so that he could save the masses and save the nations and there would be millions of Christians. That's not why he did it. According to the story, 
God left 99. He left everything. And he tore the universe apart and he tore his divinity apart so that he could be your dad. And you would see him. You, just you, just you would see him as your dad. And he'd have you as your son, your daughter. That's it. That's why he did it. This week, as you're talking about these passages and and in your prayers, and as you look at your life, I just want to challenge you not to look at all the good things of your life and then maybe God is an add-on or is a means toward this thing. But maybe just, just take some stock this week of every good thing in your life that you cherish and maybe every good thing in your life that maybe you want that's possible that you could get. Instead of saying, maybe God can help me get there, instead just say, that's for my dad. That's for my dad. My son is for my dad. This job is for my dad. This In-N-Out burger, man, it tastes good. Thanks, Dad. It's all sweetly from your dad. And of course, most of all, Jesus ripped apart. That's your father blowing a lot more than one-third of his money, fat and calf, throwing a party. He's just loved you. Just loved me. Let's pray. Lord, I preached for 45 minutes or whatever it was to say that you are a father who loves us. But that you will tear the universe apart. In fact, more than the universe, you will tear your divinity apart. That's so incredible. And to be a fool before us. And until we can see the Father who is a fool, we just don't see God. Until we see your foolishness, we cannot let go of our foolishness and all our pride and all our wisdom in the way that we run after and try to use you. I pray that we would see the cross and we would see in the cross a crazy, foolish dad running to us loving us and that would be everything in our life whether we are rich or whether we are poor whether we have a lot or whether we have little but actually that we just have you our father thank you for loving us this way we're so blind and so messed up and so far away may your spirit call us back and may we be have you and begin to just even in a small little way the unchurched, the dechurched, the secular, and the religious users, all of us younger sons, give us repentance, Lord, not because we achieve it, but by grace you give it. And we can see you and see the way you love us. Bless us this way.